welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about some of our favorite movies. Um, we are now, and we've mentioned this in a lot of you know, past few episodes, we are now a member of the Movie John Podcast Ooh. Network. So be sure to check them out on Instagram, Facebook, their website, and um, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network as well. Uh, before we kind of dive into the episode, we just have a little statement, a little update that we'd like to make. Uh, Tori has decided to take a step back from Butter With That, and we are so excited to read, listen to, and hear about all the wonderful projects that she's going to be working on. But she's not going to disappear you know, forever from Butter With That. We actually have some special episode ideas in the works that Tori will be a part of. Uh, I know that the four of us wish her all the luck in the world and to be sure to listen to her new podcast, Killer Bees, and to follow all of her work on Movie John and, you know, wherever the world takes her. Woo! And she'll be so, back. And she'll be back. Yeah. And I've checked out Killer Bees in the meantime. It's a, it's a great show. Uh, really interesting and very uh, well-researched. So it's definitely one to check out. Mm-hmm. Among all the other fabulous Movie John podcasts. So how's everybody doing? It's been a gray couple days here in cold Philadelphia. So I know I'm feeling a little, not my perky self, but how's everybody else doing? Back to work. So achy and tired (laughs) after months of atrophy, (laughs) but glad to be back to work. Yeah. It's strange. I can't remember a single thing that I've done. It's, it's almost like as soon as the day is over, it just immediately deletes itself. And I just restart. Um, but I've recently started playing D&D, um, terrible at it, enjoying it mostly. And uh, in case you're, you're wondering, my character is a, um, I'm a high elf, I'm a sorcerer that has dragon heritage. So I'm really excited about that. Oh. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's fun. I watched five episodes of Beat Bobby Flay, and <laughs> nobody can fucking beat Bobby Flay. It's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, that's all that's on my mind right now. <laughs> There's like, I, I went through a phase, we, you know, listen, I went through a phase of watching Beat Bobby Flay, and I think the best moment of the entire show was he goes to this like southern, just like, you know, chicken place, chicken sandwiches, fried chicken, barbecue, et cetera. And it ends with, you know, him beating the woman and then the whole town like turns on him. And then it's like, it's one of the weirder endings where it just kind of like quickly cuts to black and like the end episode. And then it goes in memorial, like, in honor of the woman that he beat. She died right after filming. And so Bobby- <laughs> Wait, you, you did not say that right from the get go. And so the woman that he beat, she died shortly after filming. Oh my god! And I like to think I it's that Bobby Flay killed her. Wow. Yeah, it's like whole. I believe he's a talented chef, but his whole persona is just around him, like needing to feel superior and needing to feel more accomplished than others. And I'm like. That's not a brand you really want to like solidify. But I am shook. She died. <laughs> um, y- y- speaking of like the food aspect, and <laughs> not Bobby Flay. Um, 
I, sometimes you end up on like very weird YouTube wormholes or rabbit holes or wherever, whatever, wherever, whatever animal you're going. Um, and I've discovered the Korean street food <laughs> section of YouTube. And um, we're watching these videos all the time of like, just basically you start off having no idea what's going to happen and you get like kind of like anxious and angry about like well why are they doing that that doesn't make any sense but you really do have to trust the process because then by the end what you've watched them create is beautiful or just looks so delicious so you know if you're into that kind of thing of just like <laughs> mindless and total confusion for like 10 minutes check it out mm, mm. Uh, some of my favorite parts of crazy rich, rich asians or when they were in um Hong Kong and then like all the street food that there's like so much food porn in that movie and it all looks so good. We should do food movies round two. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> mm. What was it? Wait, food and family. Food and family. Food and Thanksgiving. Family. Thanksgiving. That was such a good episode. I mean, uh, series. <laughs> it was. Uh, that and the cold movies, <laughs> I think was mm -hmm. fun too. <laughs> Were they back to back? I think, I, think, I, I think we had like a Christmas episode or like New Year's and then we did cold movies, I think. Yeah, God. <laughs> uh, has anybody been watching? We've had Bobby Flay, beating people, killing people. Any other things you've been watching? Um, I got around to seeing a movie called uh, Tammy and the Teenage T-Rex. <laughs> that stars um, Denise Richards and uh, Paul, uh, what's his name? A Fast and Furious guy, Paul Walker. Is that right? Pour one out. Yeah, that movie is uh is really uh bizarre. Uh, evidently, the whole idea was that um, the director found out that an animatronic T Rex was being moved from one exhibit to another and had I think three weeks off. So they wrote, directed, and shot the movie in three weeks. Uh, because the plot of this movie is that uh, after Paul Walker dies, um, his brain is scientifically transplanted into that of an animatronic dinosaur. And Denise Richards, not not a dinosaur, but an animatronic dinosaur. Uh, and then Denise Richards has to help him uh, set things right. It's very bizarre. It's a 1994 movie that's sort of like a cult classic uh, that has two different cuts, the original cut and the gore cut. Uh, I watched the gore cut and it was very violent and uh, it was very fun and very stupid. That reminds me, Dave, of this movie that if you haven't seen yet, I, I think you might be interested. It's called Velocipaster. Have you watched it? I've heard about this. I haven't seen it yet. That's a pastor that uh, can become a velociraptor, correct? Spoilers. You'll have to watch it. <laughs> okay. I watched uh, Judas and the Black Messiah before that was oh. taken off of HBO. And I thought it was very good. It was, it was, I, I knew like, you know, about the story and you know, all that, but I never, I didn't know any details. So that was a really cool movie. Definitely recommend. I, I think in like two or three weeks, it's going to come back on HBO or maybe after two months of being in theaters. It's that whole like Warner Brothers day and like eight week launch of their movies get on HBO and then they have a two month theatrical run or whatever and then back to HBO Max. Weird. But yeah, definitely recommend Judas and the Black Sign. Another yeah, I recommend I have. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, no, I was, I'm sorry. I was just going to say I missed that this time around, but I'm looking forward to its return on HBO. That's weird that they would take it off right as sort of the Oscar like campaign role, like it's getting a lot of buzz. It's weird that they would take it off and then. 
reinstated. Kind of pump theater numbers, I guess. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. And are people going to the theater? Is that, like, happening? The Croods, A New Age, has been in the top five box office for 18 weeks. <laughs> so, no. Sadly, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so, that movie is probably maybe the most profitable movie of 2020. That just, like, took me out of this world, I gotta tell you. Sam, I feel like I'm just slaying you left and right today. You really are. Bobby Flay and that woman dying, the Croods 2. The Croods 2? It might be the third Croods, I don't know. I cannot confirm or deny if it's the sequel. No, well, it's, you know, it is Thursday when we're recording this, and you know what they say about Thursdays? No. Life it's not Friday. <laughs> Just absolutely life changing. <laughs> Christine, did you have a recommendation? Just a quick recommendation. When I wasn't watching Be Bobby Flay, I did watch a wonderful movie recently. Uh, Network, the movie Network, which is like yeah. a classic, and it's. I feel like it's always referenced, and it's sort of cemented in cinema history. Uh, but I had never seen it and it was an awesome ride and it's just, yeah, um, kind of terrifyingly prescient (laughs) and yeah, just news networks, media, like how news transformed into entertainment or I guess continues to transform into weird for like morphs of soul-sucking entertainment but yeah it, it's it's uh it's uh, a very very good movie and a high high recommend that's the one that ends with the guy i can't take it anymore he's angry at the news see center. what's funny is i always thought that the movie ends with him i'm not gonna take or like i'm mad as hell and i'm not gonna take that scene the initial scene happens about a third of the way through the movie um, it's like he's a newscaster and he is, uh, being pushed out of his company and he goes on air and then he says that it just sort of this resigned frustration. And then they try to market it. They're like, Oh, this is fresh. This is new. And they put, it becomes the, like the mad in. news prophet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, and it's funny. Yeah. I thought the movie sort of culminated in him saying that, but it, it happens really early in the movie and it makes me actually want to watch this movie, um, Christine, which came out, I think a couple like years Mm. ago, I think also happened in the seventies, uh, real story of, um, this intense story of this woman newscaster who commits suicide on air. Um, and just ta- like, I think it sheds light on like not only her life, but, um, kind of the newscasting world. Oh, I've been watching a lot of newscasting. I watched broadcast news with Holly Hunter. Uh, that's a big recommend too. Yeah. I guess late seventies, early eighties movies and broad, like broadcast news is on my mind lately. And the Drew Barrymore show. And the Drew Barrymore show. Thank you for sending me that uh, link, Connor, because it makes me happy that she can have another season <laughs> to do whatever the hell she's doing. I do definitely uh, adore Network, though. Uh, that is one that, uh, as soon as, Christine, you mentioned you were watching it, I got so stoked and was like, damn it, I really wish I'd remembered to include that in our 100 movie episode. Because um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic movie. Maybe we could do a news theme or something. 
It would be mm-hmm. real. It would be a really fun movie to talk about. I think on the on the pod. We could also be interesting to do a movies we wish we put in our top twenty theme. Yeah, <laughs> ones that we forgot to put in that. That'd be fun. Right. Yeah, that would be our twenty first recommendation theme. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's dive into our new theme. So we just covered time travel movies, and we are jumping now to another very popular cinematic genre, and that is heist movies. Um, I think we have four really awesome movies coming down the pike for our listeners, and sort of like with time travel, that theme, I feel like we've picked very different sorts of heist movies that are doing sorts of different things, interesting ideas, a mixture of like classics with more contemporary movie. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into this theme and to sort of unpack the heist genre. Uh, and to kick it off, I my pick was 2018 American Animals, uh, which is was pretty much just a Hulu exclusive movie before MoviePass bought the rights for a limited theatrical release. And I'll talk about MoviePass in a second. Um, and I realize this is my second pick in a row that's a Hulu movie, which is unintentional, but I don't know, it was interesting for me. Uh, kind of before we get into it, has anybody seen American Animals before? The, everyone's shaking their heads. <laughs> yeah, my first time seeing it, yeah. Well, cool. I'm, I'm glad that I could bring a new movie to everybody. And this was only my second time seeing it. I saw it when it premiered uh, in the summer of 2018. There's a dog drinking water behind me, if you can hear that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it premiered. So I'll just get right into it. Uh, June 1st, 2018, it premiered on Hulu. And then MoviePass, which was supposed to revolutionize the movie theater industry, um, and then died horrifically because of Bobby Flay, um, bought the rights to, you know, give a theatrical release. And it really did not, it only made $3 million in the theater. So this, I really think of this as just like a Hulu, you know, movie. Um, I'll just get into the synopsis because I don't think a lot of people uh, have seen this movie. So Spencer Grinehart, Warren Lipka, Eric Borsuk, and Chaz Allen are four friends who live a you know, relatively ordinary existence in Kentucky. Um, after a visit to Transylvania University, Lipka and or Reinhardt um, comes up with the idea to steal the rarest and most valuable books from the school's library. As one of the most audacious art heists in U.S. history starts to unfold, the men question whether their attempts to inject excitement and purpose into their lives are simply misguided attempts at achieving the American dream. Uh, we spoil all the movies that we talk about here on the podcast. So if you had, haven't seen American Animals, definitely recommend checking it out because this movie does a lot of really cool and surprising things with how it's filmed and the structure of it. Um, so if you're interested in film structure and how movies are shot, definitely check this out and then come back and listen to us talk about it. Uh, American Animal stars Evan Peters, you know, X-Men, American Horror Story. Uh, Barry, I'm going to butcher his last name, Barry Keegan, Kogan, uh, who's in Dunkirk and the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Blake Jenner, <clears throat> Jared Abrahamson, and it also includes the real life Warren Lipka, Spencer Reinhard, Eric Borsick, and Chaz Allen. So real-life people and their sort of fictional counterparts as well. Um, so let's just dive into what you guys thought of the movie as the first time seeing American Animals and our first movie in the heist theme. This movie really surprised me. I, um, I, like, I think with, I had never heard of it and I had no idea what to expect. And I think within the, I think the first 15 minutes... I think I was a little bit unsure because I thought it was too kind of 
show-offy stylistically like the opening shots are like this upside down shot of like the sub uh, Lexington suburbs and I was like oh okay but then I kind of got used to that and then then when I realized that they were going to introduce the real guys who are reflecting back on what happened I was like okay how is this going to pull off this sort of documentary, mockumentary, true crime morphing effectively. And I think by the end, I really thought that this movie um, did a really, really great job of um, telling the story in a, in a compelling way and also incorporating the flashback uh, memories of the, the me- who are now men thinking back about what happened. I think that at the end of the day, I, I maybe wish it had pushed a little harder in exam, like critically examining and the uh, like what it, who these boys were, and sort of painted a larger picture of like sort of the consequences for their actions, sort of privileged white boys in in Kentucky, and uh, like a little bit more into their motivations of why do it, why they were doing this. But at the end of the day, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised. I thought the scene when they actually are stealing the books in the library was so effectively horrific um, and was really gripping. So I, yeah, I, I enjoyed this ride a lot. Um, this movie, I think definitely is indulgent in many good ways. And then in also some interesting, you know, maybe not so great ways as well. Like you point out in the beginning of like the upside down suburbs. Uh, but this movie throws a lot, I think at the audience. And I think a lot of it um, is really interesting stuff. Uh, Sam or Dave, kind of your thoughts on American animals. Um, I thought that, you know, like, Oh God, I feel like so conflicted on this movie. So I think stylistically, I, it's, really really fascinating and I it was an enjoyable watching experience and I like the stylistic choices they made but when it comes to not not necessarily the story but just when it comes to the guys themselves I just was like one big eye roll every like five minutes because I just I couldn't there I could not care any less about them and their whole shtick so it was it was so hard because I was like I want to keep watching this but also I fucking hate these guys and and Connor I think you mentioned and Christine like that's the point well I think it's interesting to hear I don't I didn't get the read that this movie is supposed to make you dislike them I I think you know it, it very it's very much up to your interpretation uh as as far as how you read these guys and their story and uh their actual deeds and the events but um but i think i think the movie definitely leaves it to the audience to to make its own assertions about that I, I i didn't pick up a tone that it um is supposed to be making you dislike or distrust uh these characters on the whole the whole time i guess maybe but sam I- it's interesting you bring that up yeah i mean it like hearing you say that i'm sort of like Huh? But maybe I just like I could not stand them from the from go. Then I was just like, yeah, of course that this was the whole thing. Oh, I that, that could probably be it. I think that the the eat the actors who played each one of them, I thought were wonderful. At first, the um 
I think I can't remember his name, but the guy who actually goes to Transylvania University, what's Spencer? What's his, Spencer. Spencer. At first, mm-hmm. I was like, is this actor kind of like underplaying this character? I can't quite crack, or like I can't really figure out what's making this guy tick, or what's really motivating him to want to to go along with this. But as I think I saw him interact with Warren and interact with the other two guys as they're all brought into the fold, I thought the performances were just right. And I thought also the guy who played Warren was really, really good. And it was really interesting watching their dynamic um, and questioning who was the unreliable narrator or whether there was sort of in the unreal element of unreliable storyteller. Um, and so by the end, I was like, I think each one of them nailed their performances. I think it's so, what I felt was so cool drawing in the real, the four real men <clears throat> and the ones, the real, and I call them like in my notes, the real Warren, the real Spencer, I th- the real Warren and the real Spencer get the most screen time. And then the other two, Eric and Chaz get a little bit less, but I think I'm kind of tired of the like unreliable narrator trope. Like, I just feel like that's just something that is continually I don't know, played out, at least I, you know, for me, just kind of tire of it. And this is such a reinvigoration of that idea of like such a real world example of uh, toward the end of the movie, Spencer goes, well, maybe I'm just remembering it Warren's way because Warren's way was a more fun way of thinking about it. And like, how do our friends affect how we remember events and how do we ourselves want to remember events? So in a movie where memory maybe could have been like, meh, kind of theme or like just kind of exhausted to go through that injection of like, these are the real men. Uh, as far as I'm aware, talking without a script, um, you know, remembering these events. So I thought that was a super cool and uh, written and directed. I uh, failed to mention this by Bart Layton, who did uh, this documentary called the imposter in 2012. Um, so I thought that was such a cool idea by uh, Layton to use the introduction of the real world characters to help inform the, you know, what's going on in the fictional versions and what's going on in their head. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to agree with a lot of this being my first time seeing it. I tend to agree with a lot of what Christine has had to say about it, especially as far as um, it's perhaps uh, over stylization at times. And I found that definitely to be more, a more tedious and more obvious problem in the beginning. But yeah, Christine, as you said, once it starts to put into place, that it is uh, a highly stylized and big budget reenactment coupled with um, testimonial interviews with uh, the people that experienced it. I found it to be pretty appropriately shuffled in. And like to the point that by the time I was done with this movie, I looked back on all the stylistic thing. Well, all but one of the stylistic things in the movie that I thought were actually really tasteful considering everything as a whole. Um, so yeah, I, I really, uh, I was really taken aback and really enjoyed it. Um, and as a heist movie, I think, this is sort of a has its cake and eat it too, where this is a movie that pokes fun at all the tropes of heist movies that are just, you know, have been done to death at this point over decades and decades of different heist movies. And it kind of indulges in those tropes. And then also I feel like provides like a, this is what really happens when somebody tries to go and steal something. And I love heist movies. Spoiler alert. The heist does not go well. It totally falls apart after like, I think like a year and a half, of planning and the movie spends a ton of time with buildup. And I think it also interestingly spends a lot of time uh, with the fallout, which I feel like a lot of heist movies don't always do. It's sort of like the heist happens. And then the final 10 minutes for better or for worse is kind of like 
just a quick wrap up. So I also thought it was interesting that we see, you know, the initial seed of the idea and see it all the way through to how this moment has affected the lives of these men, you know, years and years later. What did you all think about uh, how the director had, instead of keeping the realms of recreation narrative and interview narrative separate, he incorporated the real guys into particular scenes. I'm thinking of one outside of like uh, the gas station when Warren is sitting in the car. And then the other one is when uh, Spencer is, is standing in front of the driveway as the car goes by as they're, I think in the getaway car or something. I think that like, in, yeah, initially I was turned off by that. I thought to myself like, all right, this is like kind of a little bit hokey and a little bit ham-fisted. Um, but it remains so consistent. Like it really kind of like it, it, it sparses, it parses those through the movie with, uh, with pretty good distance in between each instance of it happening, but it does keep happening through the movie. And yeah, by the end, I, I just, I, I found it less cloying and like hackneyed than I found it like playful. I thought it was like a pretty creative and pretty fun way of blurring the lines of uh of, of what we're seeing as retold memory and what we're seeing occur within like real time in the presentation of those memories and so on so uh yeah i think it all came together really interestingly and i found it to be a, a pretty cool element of the movie i think that helps for me and i i think this was maybe underused but then if this idea of like putting the real people in with them is too much then it just becomes as Dave you mentioned ham-fisted but I feel like that really helps the idea of like, this is really a movie about memory and about reflecting and the trouble that we have sometimes thinking about, because there's so many times in the film where it's like, well, was it? And the core of it is basically these, you know, Spencer goes to Transylvania University. He has his, you know, high school or middle school best friend, Warren, who goes to the University of Kentucky on a sports scholarship. And they, you know, don't really connect with the kids at their school. And they're always kind of like Warren's sort of the troublemaker and, um, Spencer's just sort of the kid who follows along. And so Spencer goes on a tour of the rare books collection at Transylvania University, probably as some like part of English 101 class or whatever, and sees uh, the John James Audubon Birds of America plates, like these huge books with these beautiful paintings. If you've never seen or know about Audubon, um, definitely look him up. And when we watched this movie, Alyssa actually worked at one of the Audubon centers that recently opened up in Philadelphia. So that was kind of like a cool um, connection there. And so those books, you know, they're originals. There's also uh, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, numerous other super rare books at this uh, Kentucky University. And so he, you know, was just telling his friend Warren about, you know, there's super rare books. And it's like, well, how, you know, and then the idea sort of germinates, well, how can we, can we steal them? Is it possible? Like, oh, there's all these books just sitting there, let's take them. And then throughout the movie, it's sort of like, was it Warren's idea? Was it Spencer's idea? At the heart of it is why did this heist happen? And I think that's why, I think this happened sometime in like 2004, I don't know, like maybe 2003, 2004, why it captured a lot of media attention because these were four kids who were all in really good colleges, sports scholarships, went to, from what I looked up, like pretty elite high schools. And why did these four upper middle class slash wealthy kids do this? And I think it, I think sometimes, I think mostly the movie kind of pays for me personally, kind of paid off that idea of like exploring why, you know, middle, upper middle class rebellion in these four characters and why certain ones of them, you know, did it. But I think sometimes it's also not 
as fleshed out as well as it could have been. But I, for me, it sort of felt like these kids are trying to find excitement at a time when, you know, this is talked about throughout the movie of like, I want to make something, I want to do something. And Spencer is an artist, he's a painter. And so he's like, you know, Van Gogh cut his ear off, you know, people have killed themselves, you know, I need real, this idea of, and as, you know, someone who was in theater in, you know, high school and college, this idea of like, artists need to suffer is like such a stereotype and such like a real a feeling. Yeah, I have notes on that too. I just think like the incorrect romanticization of the suffering artist is definitely something, an idea inspired by someone who has never dealt with depression. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you do and you're an artist, uh, yeah, it, I mean, pain can really influence art in some meaningful and cathartic ways. Uh, but depression and apathy do not because they will just obstruct your your drive to make work. And if you do make work, it might suffer as a result of it. So uh, as someone who makes art and has, does suffer from depression, yeah, I can say that uh, the suffering artist concept is uh, at least a little bit bullshit. Oh, for sure. And like, also, I can't tell, like, I don't know if I bought that argument that they were saying, like, the excuse is this. I, mm, I don't know. It's like I almost wanted the movie to kind of step it. It's like he was probably saying things that he was believing himself, but I feel like it was the responsibility of the movie to step in and at least push a little bit further into questioning these motivations or questioning these mindsets. And it's like that's where I think I wish that the that the director and like writer of the movie had really kind of like pushed a little bit, bit further. I will say that at first when I was listening to the interviews, I kind of had a Sam eye roll moment, but then once the entire heist episode played out, I like the fact that they tried it the first time dressed up as old men, just completely botched or just chickened out. Like you could see the fear in their face and then they go back and they do it. And you're really watching what I thought was a very realistic depiction of what it would take to tie up a librarian, take these books. And I was horrified the whole time. And I really felt that, that tension and that, that horror come through, I was like, okay, this doesn't necessarily um, counterbalance a lack of like insight into their motivations, but at least conveys, I thought in a really effective way, how they, like, how they hadn't thought through anything, how they were just moving on impulse and just like immediate, like, feelings and and just this entire heist was based on like impulse slash apathy and and so i it made me kind of reevaluate what i had watched at the be like or judgments i had at the beginning but because i really was blown away at how tense that whole scene felt down to warren throwing up in the car like like i felt like I was going to vomit watching, watching it. And so I thought, I thought those scenes were so, so effective. One, one thing that I, I guess I want to add to that is that I feel like their motives are pretty, actually pretty well defined. It's just that their motives, or at least as far as the movie's explanation of them, it's just that their motives themselves are underdeveloped. 
um, as, as like it's people as people and as yeah. characters. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like it's obviously it would be more cinematic if there was this really cathartic, like secret burning reason for one of them or for all of them that they're doing this. But ultimately, that's not what this is the story of. This is a story of like privileged affluenza and ultimately uh, wanting more than uh, your station, even if it is a very like convenient and luxurious or or, or better than other people's sta- station. Um, just longing and yearning for bigger things, but not having any vision as far as what those things are. Cause like they're planning to do this, like what multi-million dollar heist. They never really talk about what, as, as I recall, what they plan to do with that money or with their futures or anything, because like, and I, I think it's not a, a weakness of the movie that that's underdeveloped. I think that's actually a strength of the movie because those characters motivations themselves were underdeveloped and it's perhaps less satisfying than what we see in other more dramatic cinematic tales but this is a story based in truth that i think really reflects exactly that i think i yeah i completely agree dave um and i think yeah you make an important distinction between them developing their motivations as people and and i agree the movie i think would have felt more ham-fisted if it really had tried to uh shoehorn a narrative of like this is what they were going to do with the money. You know, this is a deeper, uh, as you said, more cinematic explanation of why they would do this. I guess when I say I wanted some insight into motivation, I think it, it, as I said before, I wanted the movie to step in in some moments and be a little bit more um, like, like forceful in it's like critical examination of them um, and their, maybe lack of uh, <laughs> uh, intense motivation to do this. Um, and maybe I just wanted a come up, like I wanted to see them suffer. And I think maybe once this heist happened and I could really see how much everybody involved was suffering, I was like, okay, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. This feels more compelling to me now. And I think really all roads lead back to Warren sort of and I, I agree that this it's sort of hard to read Spencer because he is just sort of quiet just sort of like well I should go here I'm an artist it, it opens with him just being harassed at a frat initiation which maybe is a little over the top I don't know but um, certainly is like an effective way of like this kid is like in over his head just like in college in general let alone when Warren's sphere of influence sort of comes in and I think Warren is a super interesting character that really could have been like hackneyed and um, not enjoyable to watch, but he's just, he's just a charismatic guy. And, you know, looking up the real life Warren and, you know, his clips throughout the movie, just like a super interesting dude. And I love how we see them, Warren and Spencer watch heist movies, just like we're watching heist movies and sort of, you know, there's this movie, I kind of didn't really realize this the first time, but plays a lot on, especially Tarantino. Um, and wanting to emulate being in the movies because Warren is so unhappy with his life, with his dad, who he views as pathetic, you know, his family who's getting divorced. Like he just really hates his life. And so I think for him, movies were such, are like an escape for him. And this, this heist was this fantasy world that he'd rather live in than the real world. And because he was this sort of cult-like kind of leader of this group of four, able to draw people into his sphere of influence. Um, just kind of hoodwinked everybody. And even Spencer, the real Spencer says, I was looking, we were looking for any way out throughout it. I was looking for any way out and I thought we had it. And then Warren roped us back in. 
I would be so interested to see what the movie would have looked like had they interviewed Spencer and Warren and everyone else or like right around the time that, you know, this was so relatively fresh, right? So like now we're several years after all of this, they've all grown and they've all matured a little bit and their stories have probably solidified and changed, right? You know, when you hear the, I just wanted to do something, like that is very, like a very juvenile thing. But I also know that that's been worked on and that's been practiced, right? So like, I would have, I would love to hear like fresh Warren and Spencer. And I know Warren, Connor, you you posted that link in your notes that Warren wrote an article or an article was released? Yeah, so in, I believe, 2007, Vanity Fair. Um, so they, they're arrested. They botch it, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, and they are each given roughly seven-year prison sentences in federal prison. Uh, three of them are in a Kentucky, the same Kentucky federal prison, and Chaz has moved to a different medical federal prison somewhere else in the country for most of his stay. And so in 2007, so a couple years into Warren's sentence, Vanity Fair reaches out to do this really extensive, really long kind of expose and interview of him and the other men uh, kind of talking about this heist three years after. And that was a really interesting kind of piece to go through. And it turns out that that piece, according to Warren, put him in the hole, put him in solitary confinement for four months because the guards didn't view that piece as, you know, view that piece as him not taking his punishment seriously, according to Warren. So, and I'm kind of glad that the movie is interviewing these men so many years later, because I think that adds to another element of covering your own ass. And how do you see yourself as the hero? And what are the narratives that we have constructed in our own minds to kind of cover up trauma in our past or cover up shitty decisions that we made? You know, how can we help? And the movie doesn't pull on this thread much. I think a lot of this is just kind of me watching it, but I think it's interesting having these men look back and some lines are like, is that rehearsed or is that the story that you told yourself? So that way you can feel, you know, sleep at night or feel better about yourself. I guess I felt like their interviews were pretty genuine. Like I, right. I, I don't think that they, were, they pieced together a story over the years or that they're bullshitting because if they were, they would have come up with something smarter. You know, they did a stupid thing and they seem to pretty bluntly say, yeah, we did a stupid thing without much of a sense of direction. And we bit off way more than we can chew and really regret hurting someone. So I think that, I don't know. I I don't feel like they're bullshitting their way through it too much. Oh, and I'm not saying that they're like bullshitting, but it's just interesting to be like this really horrible thing you did years later. How do you talk about it? How do you think about it? Mm -hmm. And I do think they are genuinely remorseful. They pled guilty. Like they didn't go to trial. So, and they, you know, in the interviews genuinely seem remorseful, but just as an observer, it's just interesting to think about how has the years affected the way they think about the story. And is Spence, like, unconsciously did Spencer just forget kind of how it started because Warren's version was better? Or is that how it happened? Or did Warren push Spencer? So I think, for me, those were interesting things as a viewer to think about. And that the movie, I think, was just kind of putting out, you know, just putting out there to think about. What did you all think about the librarian's interview, the real um, BJ at the end? BJ Gooch. God, what a heart. That's really unfortunate. I mean, <laughs> like, it was so interesting to hear. I didn't think that we were going to hear from the, the real woman who went through that, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially because I, again, thought that the whole scene was just like, 
so tense and like it would presumably mean that the woman was watching this movie and like reliving this trauma she went through um but then she she like talked about uh she called them like idiots, but I can't remember if this was in the movie or if this is an article I read later, but she apparently saw the development of the movie as a process of healing and that actually watching this movie gave her more of um, an understanding of like where the boys were coming from and like was important step in her healing. Did they not cover that in the movie? I must have read this after the fact, which I was so surprised by. Um, do you, would, did you guys want more from her throughout the movie or would you think it was effective to like, just have kind of that short interview at the end? Cause I really, I didn't know. I feel like I'm so torn between wanting to hear more and learn more. And then also, cause then you sort of pull focus away. Cause it starts as the Spencer right away. Then you grow to Warren. Then it kind of just germinates into more people, which always causes problems in heist movies when you have to bring in another guy or I know a guy bring them in. And so I'm, I think I'm glad we just see that moment of like, that once again, ties it to the realness. Cause maybe if she was brought in earlier, I, I'm conflicted. Cause then if you include her, cause you see a professor as well, but then do you also include the parents more? Like at what point is there kind of like a cutoff to keep the movie a little more focused? Cause I do think it does feel a little long. I think it, it definitely makes more of an impact being at the end mm-hmm. uh, because it is pretty much just, well, I, I mean, as, as you've covered just now, there are some tangential like um, side interpretations from family and from uh, uh, close associates and, and educators and so on that knew these boys and so on. Um, but it, it chiefly sits in and stews in their explanation of the events and following them through the reenactment. So I think having her step in at the end pretty tastefully shifts your focus back to the notion that like, you know, however you feel about these four individuals who committed this crime, uh, it was not a victimless crime. And the victim is speaking out about it at the end in a way that uh, it doesn't like totally reframe everything we've seen, because as they've said, like they're really remorseful. Uh, as Christine, you've covered the actual uh, dramatization of the heist is really horrific. But having her be able to step in at the end and be kind of one of the final says as the victim of this crime uh, really kind of puts things into uh, not a different context, but it really kind of drives home uh, the the under the underscored atmosphere of violence and uh, and victimhood that runs through the rest of the movie. Well, and I'm so glad you brought up the idea of like you know victims in this movie because at the end of the movie is when you know they talk about my family were the victims too, or like talk about the people that they hurt, and they said you know we reassured ourselves there's going to be no victims, nobody's going to get hurt. In the uh, there's sort of three heists in this movie, and the first heist is this sort of um, reservoir dogs, sleek suits, and slick back hair, and like they, it's kind of like a choreographed dance where they're imagining Warren's imagining what this heist will look like. It's going to go flawlessly. We see them, you know, tape up, you know, things all over the the walls of their basement and planning out the routes and exits and cameras, and so you see her just like quickly tase, and she just ah like passes down passes out and then you don't even see her tire up. They like take the books, Warren's just like flipping through everything. And then Chaz is like, no, like that's not how it's going to happen. Um, and so I think they just really did not think about how difficult it would be to actually like do these things. And I made a whole running tally of every single way the heist went wrong. And the, the third time that they do it, because the second time they, 
and this is such, I feel like kind of juvenile as well. And like only you'd see in the movies of this intense makeup because they disguise themselves as old men, all these layers of clothes. The movie even opens with them like doing their face and doing the eyes and like the wrinkle makeup. And then they just look so ridiculous. These four men getting out of the minivan and you're like, these are really just children. Just it's, children trying to do this really fucking stupid thing. It's literally um, when kids are st- trying to sneak into a movie, they're like three toddlers in a trench coat. It is literally that. And that's the funny thing, too, is like they want to disappear from from suspicion and from like everyone's attention as they're trying to do this. So rather than going into a college as college students, they put on obvious disguises. <laughs> Oh, so this is another thing that I read in this when it was uh, it was I guess it was just an interview with the librarian and just talking about the events. So she saw the I, this de- is depicted in the movie. She saw them and she thought they were theater students like shooting a movie in the <laughs> oh, library. <laughs> I wonder if that's why the costume guy says, "What are you doing, the theater troupe?" And he and Spencer goes, "No, I'm making a movie." I wonder if that's where oh, that wow. line came from. Probably if I saw them, like, in the library, if I was one of the students in the library, I probably would have thought the same thing. Like, I wouldn't have thought, oh, they're about to rob the library. I would have probably thought that they were, like, still students, not, like, old academics coming to check out this rare book. (laughs) It's like, no, they're filming a sketch or something. And I feel like this... I mean, I, I love the, I think the Oceans movies are great. I, I also enjoyed Oceans 8, which came out a few years ago. And those are the like sleek, polished, sexy heist movies yeah. where like you want to root for the bad guys. And I think there is like something to enjoy about those kinds of movies. Um, and I, what I love about American Animals is that it does give you moments of that, but then it shows the realness of what happens. Because in the third heist, so... Warren kind of like chickens out there's cause there's other librarians in the like seek. It's like the sealed off room, like mission impossible sealed off room. I was kind of thinking of that. And so he like chickens out. Cause of course it's like, you can't control how many people are in the library. And it's like, don't you see that that's just like so many factors you can't control about this plot. And so then they just kind of go in normal disguises. Spencer's the only one that goes to Transylvania university. I think I'm pretty sure. Uh, Eric does not. So it's sort of like they wouldn't, unless Dave, you. I think he does, right? Because he's taking the exam at one point. I think but, three of them go to UK and the other, and then Spencer's the only one who goes to. Okay, that might be right, yeah. Which wasn't clear at the beginning. I thought Warren and Spencer were in school together, and it was very unclear to me until Spencer's like, oh, they they won't recognize you. They'll recognize me. And I was like, wait, they don't go to school together. So they really just way overthought this. And so the third time they go, it's much simpler. Warren goes, and there's this whole debate about who's going to take out the librarian. And everybody says that they're not going to do it, obviously, because it's horrible to taser somebody. And Warren just goes, fuck it. I'll do it, essentially. Um, and so then... And even he kind of chickens out. So he gets in, makes an appointment to get in, calls an Eric who said, I'm absolutely not going to do that, hurt this woman. Essentially. She had to be tied up by the time he got there or incapacitated by the time he got there, right? Was the idea. Yes, that was the idea. So he just, she would just disappear essentially from Eric's consciousness, you know, from his Mm -hmm. conscience. So um, Warren tasers BJ, tasers a librarian. 
And that's just such a horrific scene. And the film is shot fairly in terms of like how it's actually shot pretty standard. And then that third heist becomes like hand cam kind of shaky footage a little just to like help rack, you know, you know, the tension is building and she wets herself. It's really, it's, God, it's just such a, a sad scene. And I just want to read through kind of all the things that go wrong with this heist. Um, so the taser doesn't work like they thought. They thought that, oh, you touch her and she just passes out. The gloves rip as they're trying to put them on to hide their fingerprints and they both tear them off. Um, librarian is traumatized. Tying somebody up is incredibly difficult. And then she like attempts to like drag herself toward the door. And it's just like, they're threatening her now. Um, of course, they can't find the keys because these things are under lock and key, these multi-million dollar books. And they have to, you know, Warren has to like, mess with the keys to find the right one. Uh, the books are way heavier than they thought because these are giant, like probably five, four foot, five foot across books. And these things weigh probably a hundred pounds, if not more. And so they have to like, they don't think about how heavy they are. Um, there's a service elevator in the back and they go, oh, it's gonna be so cool. We'll go down to the basement. Well, they get into the basement with the books, the lights are out and they can't find the exit. So they have to go back up to the first floor, which Eric accidentally pressed the one button. So the librarian all the way across, a different librarian, sees these two guys holding something in the service elevator and goes down. They come back up. She calls the cops and they just like make a run for it to the outside where Chaz is waiting in the car. Um, and they drop the books as well as they're trying to escape out. Um, sort of like this emergency out the side eggs. And they say, fuck it, just go and go. So they only end up getting two books out of you know all the ones that they were trying to get. And then Warren gets hit by Chaz in the car because Chaz sees Warren just books in a different direction. Eric runs in a separate direction and Chaz is freaking out because he's the driver, does not know where to go, ends up hitting Warren, probably giving him a concussion um, as they're trying to escape. Warren, pull, uh, Chaz pulls out, causes like car accidents. Of course, like this is super suspicious seeing all of this. And of course they're leaving so many clues behind and it's pretty obvious right away. The cops know that it's four young white men who, you know, pulled this off. And then Christine, as you mentioned, uh, Warren throws up in the car, which is like super visceral way to kind of end. I was ready to vom too. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Especially too, because he's the one that is like ushering or, or encouraging everyone on like, no, we need to do like while the heist is happening. No, we need to do this. We need to see it through. It has to be this way. We have to improvise, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like at like a 10, um, while everyone else is kind of locking up and panicking. And it's not until he gets into the car and they're, they think safely driving away that he can kind of confront what's happened and just vomits. And then they can't sell the books because of course you people would notice millions of dollars of books missing. These rare Audubon's origin of species, right? Really famous books in Western, you know, the Western canon. And they go to New York to try to like the, cause they, and there's this whole complicated plot, which I love how complicated it is of flying to, what is it, Amsterdam to meet mm -hmm. these rare book dealers, fly back and sell them, but you need the authentication. So there's this whole roundabout process. And of course, the, the uh, auctioneer person who works at the auction house, she is incredibly suspicious of like, well, how did your grandfather get this hundreds of year old original manuscript? It's like, he just had it. Like, well, is there any documentation? No. Yeah, just passed down in the family. <laughs> and that's just so suspicious. And then it's like, so clearly just to not think this through, you see their lives falling apart. And then Chaz. Wait, 
The sorry to interrupt, Connor. The detail I loved is when Warren and Spencer get back in the car, and the other guy that they've brought in to drive the getaway car is like, "What? So what's the deal?" And Spencer's like, "Oh, well, the appraiser needed to, or the book, whatever lady needed her boss to be there. He's the one who needs to look at this book. So we we left a number, and the uh, the getaway car guy goes, "Oh, so you left the hotel number?" And Spencer's like. Uh, no, I gave her my cell phone number. And then he's like, mm-hmm. call, somebody call Spencer's phone. And then it like, it rings and it's like, Hey, what's up? It's Spencer. And it's like, that was such a wonderful detail to really drive home how stupid and how unthought out this whole plan was. I was like, that's such a good detail. And then you're just waiting for the cops to come. And then it turns out that they use the same emails on school computers, which is like the dumbest thing ever, uh, to contact these like black market art dealers. And I thought that was a really cool scene when one by one, the police like raid these folks home. That feels a little movie like. I don't think that's how it actually happened. But in the film, it's super effective. Uh, like, light flooding in through the, through the nighttime. Right. I mean, those. <laughs> you might want to. I don't know. They might rush them all at the same time so they can't contact one another, you know. Right. I guess just like the style, I don't know. It just felt very cinematic of like a police raid in a home. Um, and they're all doing it while they're sleeping. Campus, you know, Spencer is like a freshman, I guess now a sophomore, sleeping in a dorm room and they just unlock it. And he's just like, they all like surrender. Evan Peters like closes his eyes as they're like invading his basement. And then they plead guilty and go to prison for like seven years. Yeah, I love the scene too, where uh, before they're apprehended, there's... Um especially Warren is just sort of like, uh, I think obviously is, is struck by a guilty conscience and knows that, you know, their the house of cards that they built was going to fall eventually. And like, you see him, you know, going into the store and like, um, staring at just a row of like chips and like, this is where the the character kind of really translated for me because like, I've definitely had that moment where like, I almost break down in a Rite Aid because I'm looking at the same selection of chips I'm going to have to buy for the rest of my life because of how much money I'm probably going to be making or whatever. And, and he just steals it because he, in his guilty conscience, he just wants to get caught basically. So he just, he just steals from the place. It's really obvious. Uh, the security guard runs out after him and, and doesn't do anything. Cause I guess they don't have no chase policy or something. And he's almost pissed off that he's not going to get in trouble for it. I found that to be like a really cathartic uh, character moment for his, for his character, especially um, in the midst of them realizing that they're, they're pretty much screwed. And it's just a matter of time and him wanting to just get it over with, not only because of the stress of the situation, but also because of the guilt. And the like paranoia too, of like yeah. they're coming and there's, you know, he has a great quote. I think I forgot to write down about like, you know, paranoia. Warren has kind of like a lot of great quotes that are like, edgelord meets like teenage like angsty teenager which i feel like not that i like relate to warren but the idea of like you're just so frustrated with life that you feel like you have to lash out and like do something crazy uh there's a line where he goes like because spencer's like i'm out like i'm not going to do it the second the old man heist failed i'm out i can't do it and like warren draws like a real literal line in the sand moment of like well are you just gonna like wonder whatever happens if you don't cross that line like what is it going to be like 20 years from now and I think that it's certainly interesting to think about of like, if you don't ever risk anything, what is it life going to look like for you? But this is not the thing to risk. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the, the risk. <laughs> it's to pretty taking big your life. risk. So I, I definitely like 
feel like where Warren's coming from. He's just a fucking doofus who just has a self-destructive streak and tears down everybody in his world with him. That's the thing. I, I definitely felt like I've, I've known these characters like I, mm-hmm. I and I were the people that they're based on. Like I've, I've definitely had experiences with people who are exactly like this. And oftentimes as it does here, it doesn't end well, but I've definitely known a lot of people, especially like the dude, um, uh, Eric, uh, Borsik. Like I I've known a few Eric Borsics in my life and like, which one's he, the, um, mm-hmm. Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. And like, they, they feel really believable, which is in part a strength of the performances in part, a strength of the direction, uh, in incorporating live interviews. And also just because it's like, uh, I feel like this isn't too uncommon. It's an uncommon subject for a heist movie, but it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, I think, for, for for privileged people to find themselves despondent and wanting more than uh, than what has already been laid at their feet, um, and oftentimes it uh, it going very poorly. Well, and that's tied to like even this movie is like talks about a legacy as well as like a sub theme because Warren's dad also went to the University of Kentucky, presumably on the same scholarship Warren's on full full ride. And Warren, you know, doesn't go to any practices because he doesn't give a fuck. And the coach is like, basically, like, go to practice or I'm kicking you out of the school. And he's like, fine, I'm kicked out. I've been trying for this team since I was five years old and I have no fucking idea why. And then essentially just walks out and drops out of school. Yeah. I have a few trivia facts about American Animals. Uh, The title American Animals actually comes from a memoir that Eric Borsick wrote, uh, which is a quote from The Origin of Species, which um, opens the film, along with those really intimidating close-ups of the birds attacking each other that Audubon painted. Um, Sorry, one quick thing. Go ahead. Did you, uh, one thing that I really loved is, uh, you know, uh, when we're introduced to the books, the Audubon books, for the whole time that we're discussing them and up to the the moment of the heist, it's that really uh, kind of, calming and like pastoral picture uh painting of um of the flamingo and then as soon as the two of them go into the uh the room to to do the heist it turns out the exhibit within the exhibit they've moved the page and now it is uh two birds two uh, i think hawks violently attacking something Mm -hmm. which is a really nice subtle touch and also with the uh, flamingo i loved the scene where spencer is walking down the road at night Mm -hmm. and he sees this fl- pink flamingo down this country road and it's so sinister and works so well to, to strike this really ominous tone. And he walks, he watches it ro- walk across the street and it's just such a wonderful technique using a flamingo, which is an animal that seems the most unthreatening of all birds and animals. <laughs> and really in that scene makes it feel very, very uh, yeah, just sinister and kind of potentially upsetting i did not read that as a sinister moment that's really interesting because oh, i read I it as very, this is the, I mean, maybe this movie already got me like <laughs> i mean it definitely is like lit kind of sinisterly but i viewed it as this is the road that spencer can go down he can be this pink flamingo enjoying the cool breeze but instead he's turning himself into the hawk tearing people apart and i think after that oh, he that's turns, so interesting he turns oh. around and i think he turns around and walks back so he doesn't follow that road well, that's what's interesting to me. I think my interpretation was the opposite because um, he sees it, it's just when he's thinking after he's talked to uh, Warren about like, hey, man, I don't want a part of this. And Warren gives him the ultimatum and then he leaves. Uh, for me, it was like 
I imagine for uh, for the character of Spencer, like a sign from the universe where like, oh, here is here is literally the thing as I'm having the doubt about doing the thing standing here in the street. I better go back and commit to this. Hmm. Isn't that what we love about movies? Different opinions about the same couple seconds of film. <laughs> and it is really nice, too, that it is left open to interpretation that way. And also is uh, the lighting and like the whole situation is very Lynch, which is cool. Mm-hmm. I also love, I think this movie also ends on such a great note too, where you see the real life Spencer who lives now again in Lexington, Kentucky, walk out of the garage where they were filming his interviews and sees the getaway van drive by, which is a moment we saw earlier, you know, during the heist itself. So I thought that was a really cool moment. Also pulling out like what is real, what isn't a cool moment to end the movie on. So the library scenes, kind of back to trivia, uh, were filmed at Davidson College in North Carolina. um, And during spring break of 2017. And uh, ultimately none of the real life librarians made the, you know, the cut of the film, but they did uh, have to supply headshots and like sign waivers in case they did accidentally get included. Uh, but none of them were included. However, they still had to work during this, the filming because it was a functioning college library. And so if you watch the movie, uh, you'll notice that blinds are closed in offices because those are the real librarians working at the computers in their offices. So I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, wow. Uh, and Bryant, the director, actually approached the four men during their time in federal prison, probably around the time that Vanity Fair article came out, um, to talk about the making of this movie. So I think for Bryant, this was sort of a long, you know, a big project that he wanted to work on. And final, and I think this is one of those interesting trivia facts, uh, Warren Lipka, it says at the end of the movie, moved to Philadelphia and attended film school. Uh, he still lives in Philly. And he went, uh, the year the movie came out, he graduated from Temple's film program where Cheryl Dunier of the Watermelon Woman, who we talked about, um, one of Christine's picks also went to Temple as well. Right. Right, Christine. Yeah. So it's, you know, kind of interesting connection there. Uh, and in interviews before the movie, he said that it was kind of weird to be in film classes talking about narrative structure while being in a movie that plays a lot with narrative structure. That's kind Uh, of trip. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. And so according to his social media, he's still living in Philly. So I thought that was a cool connection. We should hit him up. Warren, come on the pod. Tell us the truth. Yeah, did, Warren, you actually go, did you actually go to Amsterdam? No. <laughs> and that's the thing too. Did Warren just fake the whole thing? Were, were there ever these shady black market art dealers when he flew to Amsterdam? Or did he just steal Spencer's money and make it all up? And I guess, right, you have to end the move. One of the closing shots of several is Warren says, you just got to take my word for it, I guess. Uh, that's actually funny. I, I couldn't figure out for the life of me. Like, I was convinced, like, no, he must have gone to Amsterdam. I'm like, I understand there's that doubt about it, but, like, why why wouldn't he have? But, yeah, Connor, as you point out now, it, it could have easily been a way for him to uh, swindle money from his buddy, which I, I hadn't even considered. So, yeah, maybe maybe I'm uh, too naive for a heist. <laughs> well, any sort of final thoughts on American animals as we are closing? Um, just want to quickly add... Um, Evan Peters, I've never seen in anything else. He is a house on fire in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's it's a fantastic performance. The guy with um, Warren. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, uh, J- uh, what is it? Jared Abramson, who plays uh, Eric Borsick, uh, plays it very like very r- restrained, um, which it, it apparently really suits uh, the person he's based on, and it is really kind of why I was like, oh, I, I definitely have met this guy because of because of how his performance highlights uh his personality uh across the board great performances but yeah especially uh especially among peters and abramson they really knock it out of the park mm-hmm. i think 
uh, Evan Peters is like 32 or 33. Like he, he's in his 30s playing a college kid. And I was like, I think generally his performance is great, but his his energy of playing like an, a, like a late teens, early 20s kid, I thought was so good. Like he, he mm. balanced that affable like charm. You're like, oh, yeah, this would be a really fun guy to hang out with. And the like stupidity and also like – um, I got to get everybody on board on on my sort of impulsive like decision making. Yeah. One last detail that I didn't want to forget was I think it's so cool how Warren, real Warren, wears a red flannel like button down, and then frequently throughout the movie, movie Warren also wears a red flannel, and so there's some interesting also color coordination between uh, the real life, especially Spencer and Warren. Um, I don't think I noticed it as much with the other two, but I just thought that was such like the theater person in me. That's just like such a theater thing to do with like older versions, younger, I don't know. So I I thought that was just also a really cool production detail as well. Yeah, I missed that. That's cool. Um, oh, darn. There's one other thing that I wanted to say. What was it? Fuck. Oh, the one thing that I, uh, there's one, one stylistic choice too many that like, like I said before, um, in the beginning, I I was kind of rolling my eyes at a lot of the stylistic decisions, but found them all to be, uh, appropriate in hindsight. The one that I think though really bothered me was the, uh, the Google POV staring, staring back at Warren through the computer. That's where like the, the text is reversed on the screen and everything. That's when I was like, all right, this is a bridge too far. I can't abide this one. That was a weird moment. I totally agree. That scene was like, this is like me on Power Director being like, oh, I just learned this great new technique. Why don't I just use it? And like when I feel like a person is watching a professional director and thinking, oh, it looks like he just found that feature on like a video <laughs> editing software. Never a good idea. Right. And it never comes back. It's the only time no. it's ever used. <laughs> it's like the infamous Zoom from Lake House, but not as effective. Oh my God, you're right. We should have like a collection of like terrible choice, like momentary <laughs> stylistic choices. And we should have like an award show at the end that's Ooh. the best worst stylistic choice. The style. I'll, I'll keep a running tab. I'll keep a little like side note tal- tab tab yeah. thing. We'll add a tab to our uh, Butter With That calendar on Google Sheets. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for stopping by today, whatever time of day, evening, dusk you're listening to. I feel like Butter With That is best enjoyed at dusk. I don't know how everybody else feels. Um, but be sure to check yeah. us out on all our social media platforms. Uh, you can also shoot us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of time travel month. Because there are certainly plenty of time travel movies, and we can't cover them all. So if you have one, a favorite that we didn't cover or one you found interesting, definitely be sure to let us know on social media. Or if you shoot us an email, we'll read it on the show. If I remember to read it, and I'll try to be a good host and (laughs) remember to read emails. Um, If you can travel back in time, go back in time and tell us before we did it. Mm. Oh, boy. Then we'll get into string theory or one you. Oh, man. (laughs) One of us is going to start disappearing in a photo. Um, we gave her a shout out at the beginning of the episode. Be sure to follow Tori at Movie John. Follow her work on Killer Bee podcast. Um, anything else that folks want to plug? 
Uh, movie John. You know, Movie John's got great stuff. And that, again, Movie J-A-W-N, uh, which for Philly residents is uh, just an average noun. But uh, to the rest of the world, it might be a little confusing. So uh, go ahead and check that out. That's MovieJohn.com. Does everybody remember the scene in Creed 1 where Tessa Thompson explains what John is to Michael B. Jordan mm-hmm. at Max's Cheesesteaks? That was an interesting scene. I'll leave it at that. Uh, well, thanks so much for stopping by. Enjoy movies. Hopefully you'll be getting vaccinated soon. And we'll be able to have a live show one day, maybe in the far future. It'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Have a good dusky time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>